and welcome back to Geeking with Destination Venus. Here again with another hour of geeky news, views, opinions and general rambling. And we'll start this week with some general geek news. Because Joss Whedon is in the news again. He's given an interview to New York Magazine in which he tries to address some of the controversy that surrounded him of late. Now, I've spoken about Joss Whedon before and I should go on record as saying that I am a massive, massive fan of his work. Particularly, I love Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and I love Firefly. I can see, as I've gotten older, I can see the flaws in Buffy now. But I think it stands as a great piece of late 90s, early 2000s TV. I think it's absolutely spot on. Yes, there are things I don't like about it. There are some flaws that I see now that I missed maybe at the time. A couple of things actually that made me uncomfortable at the time. But it's a wonderful piece of work, as is Firefly. And for a long time, I considered myself a fan of the man himself. I saw him in much the same light as I still see Simon Pegg. He was the geek who made good. He was one of us. But then, in the last three or four years, stuff started to come out about his behaviour, how he was something of a bully on set, and that his behaviour towards some of his female actors was often, let's go with inappropriate and leave it there, shall we? And things came to a particular head when the actor Ray Fisher, who plays Cyborg in Justice League, made some very firm accusations about bullying behaviour that he'd experienced on the set of Justice League. And also he was particularly upset that almost his entire performance had been cut out of the version of the film that just Whedon was responsible for producing. Again, if you don't remember, what happened with Justice League was that um, Zack Snyder, the original director, had to quit because of some family issues. Uh, his daughter actually took her own life and fairly obviously making a movie about some people in tights kind of didn't seem that important to him at the time. He had his family to look after. So he left with the project not completely finished, but almost finished. And Warners reached out to Joss Whedon and basically said, look, can you come and finish this for us? We need to get it done. And honestly, that probably seemed like a really good move. You know, Whedon was a fan favourite director. He had a history of success in big superhero movies. He directed the first Avengers movie, for instance. So he must have seemed to the producers like a, a very safe pair of hands. But it is very clear that things were going wrong almost as soon as he arrived. Uh, There's not just Ray Fisher has had things to say about Whedon's bad behaviour during the making of, of the rest of the movie. Gal Gadot has had some stuff to say as well. And, you know, it, it's you then look at what he did. He'd been brought in to finish off the movie. What he actually did was almost rewrite it um, and reshoot loads of it. You know, they had to get Henry Cavill back to do some reshoots after he'd grown a moustache for the Mission Impossible movie that he's in, which is why they had to CGI the moustache off Superman for large bits of that movie, which is why Superman's mouth looks so weird. And in the process of doing this, Whedon pretty much completely erases the character of Cyborg from the film. And I'm not sure why he did that. In the interview, he says that he didn't think Cyborg's story made any sense. Zack Snyder, who was the originator of the movie, felt that Cyborg was at the heart of it. So clearly very different ideas about what film needed to be made. And since Snyder wasn't around and I don't know what the producers were doing, they must have just thought, well, this is the man we called. He must know what he's talking about and let him get on with it. Because, as I say, the film that Whedon eventually handed over bears no relation to Zack Snyder's vision. And we know it doesn't because both versions of the film now exist at great expense. Zack Snyder was then brought back in by Warner Brothers to produce his own cut 
of Justice League, for which he did loads of research shoots. I mean, they've made this movie twice now. And I don't know. It all seems very odd. But Whedon doesn't come out, for me, very well out of that story. And now he's decided to address the issue. I don't think he's done himself any favours, really. I mean, he really lays into Fisher, uh, essentially saying that all of Fisher's accusations are baseless and malicious. And uh, I think the actual quote is uh, he calls Fisher a bad actor in both senses of the word, which is, you know, petty, actually. Fisher is a decent actor. He just is, you know, that's not the sort of thing a professional says about another professional. He dismisses Gal Gadot's uh, comments by saying that English isn't her first language and that since his language can sometimes be quite flowery, she probably didn't understand what he meant, which is patronising at best. And Gadot has come forward and said, no, 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 she understands exactly what he was saying and exactly what he meant. And she stands by everything that she said. And, you, you know, I think that my problem here is Whedon isn't in a position to play the Bart Simpson defence. You know, the, I didn't do it, nobody saw me do it, can't prove anything. Because people did see him do it. If it was just Ray Fisher who was saying these things, then, you know, okay, that could be a, a clash of personalities, a, a bitter actor who's annoyed that they were cut out of the film. You know, you could be persuaded in those circumstances, but... Those are not the circumstances that we are in. Too many people are telling the same stories about Whedon from too many different places. And this bluster now, this I didn't do it, it's all been made up line that he's taking, does him no credit or favours. I mean, all he's doing is hurting his reputation more. I think really the only thing that Whedon can do is take a step back think about what he's done, think about why people are calling him out on it, and try and understand. Because if he genuinely doesn't think he's done anything wrong, he really does need to take a very long, hard look in the mirror. As do we, uh, as a geek community and as a society in general, because it's not just Joss Whedon. The man's not a unique monster. He's part of a trend, a pattern of behaviour, particularly when it comes to the treatment of women. You know, women and girls are not always treated well or with respect in geek communities, and that is a shame, because it goes against what, for me, being a geek is all about, which is about accepting everyone for the things they love, and sharing the things you love with whoever the heck will listen. And yet we get girls being told they can't be true fans of Star Wars and they must only like it because they want to impress their boyfriend. And we get death threats for female writers online. And you know this sort of thing. You know, I mean, it shouldn't be necessary for conventions to have to put up signs saying that cosplay is not consent and you must not touch the cosplayers. But many cons do have to put signs like that up because at many cons, female cosplayers get groped a lot. So there's a wider problem. Whedon is a symptom of this, and we all need to do better, not only by not behaving in that way in the first place, but also calling that behaviour out when we see it. If Whedon was misbehaving on the set of Buffy, then there's no way he should have been allowed to get away with it all the way through to Justice League. That's 20 years. So yeah, We've got to do better. And you know what? That might have been the boring preachy pop. So what else is happening in the world of geek? Well, I'm going to briefly touch on what is, as I record this on Tuesday, the 18th of January, breaking news. By the time you hear this on Thursday, the what would it be? 20th of January. Um, more information may be out there, but for reasons, I have to record everything this week on the Tuesday. So I can't do late breaking news. Uh, so as I record this on Tuesday... It's just been announced that Microsoft is buying Activision Blizzard, the computer gaming company. Um, now, if I sound like I don't really know what I'm talking about here, uh, it's because I don't completely 
Um, gaming is not my thing. At least computer video gaming is not my thing. Um, I'm a tabletop RPG guy myself. Uh, I am not one of the three billion people who actively take part in gaming around the world. Um, but this strikes me as quite big. If the reports are to be believed, Microsoft have paid 68.7 billion, that's billion with a B, dollars for Activision Blizzard. Now, if you were wondering, is that a big number? Well, if Bill Gates were putting his hand in his own pocket and buying Activision Blizzard, that would be just over half his entire fortune. So, in Bill Gates' world, no. It's not that big a number. But, to put it into perspective, Disney bought Marvel for about $4 billion, and it also bought Lucasfilm and the whole of Star Wars for about $4 billion. So, for just over a tenth of what Microsoft is paying for Activision Blizzard, Disney got Star Wars and Marvel. This is a huge, huge deal. Will it make any difference to the gaming experience? Probably not. But it will mean that overnight, Microsoft will become the third biggest computer games software company in the world, behind Tencent and Sony. Um, I don't know. I mean, I am very old. I'm 50 years old now, and I think of computer gaming as it was in the 80s and 90s, back when I actually did play games. Um, my last console, for the record, was a Dreamcast. And back then, I think gaming had a kind of rebel, unco unconventional kind of attitude. And I don't know if it still does, but I am fairly certain that if that kind of spirit currently exists at Activision Blizzard, it won't last long under Microsoft, which is one of the most corporate companies I can think of. Bill Gates might have been a geek, but he was never a rebel. And um, that is very much a conservative culture at Microsoft. So, you know, there may be some changes there. I don't know. As I say, uh, I'm reporting this as a piece of general information. Uh, it's not an area I am well versed in. If anybody out there would like to uh, chuck some opinions at me. Uh, if you are a gamer and you have a view, please let me know. Info at destinationvenus.co.uk. So moving on. As I record this on Tuesday the 18th of January, another great thing has happened in the world of geek. Because today, the Moon Knight trailer dropped from Disney+. Plus. Yes, he's going on about Disney+, Plus again. But, I mean, if you're interested, you'll have seen it by now. But there's been some reaction on Twitter, which I'll get to. First of all, if you are not familiar with the character of Moon Knight, and I'm betting that most of you are not, I'll just give you a quick rundown of who the character is. Now, Moon Knight is Mark Spector, ex-Special Forces. Um, he was involved in a mission in Egypt, and he died. And he was subsequently resurrected by Khonshu the Egyptian moon god, uh, to be the fist of Khonshu. And in that guise, he goes around doing good and punishing bad guys, basically. And if we're honest, and you'll hear this take a lot, Moon Knight was kind of a Batman ripoff when he started. Marvel didn't have a Batman, so Moon Knight was kind of their answer. And in that role, he never completely worked. But the character's been developed over time, and now Mark Spector is still Moon Knight, but he has a number of mental health issues which are fundamental to his character. He has dissociative identity disorder, which means although he is Mark Spector, that is not the only personality that lives in his head. And that's clear in the trailer, because although I know that Mark Spector is Moon Knight, the character that Oscar Isaacs is playing in the trailer is referred to as Stephen, right up until the end of the trailer. 
This is not a spoiler. It's for the trailer. So, you know, they're clearly going to play with that for the Disney Plus show, which is good. So long as they do it well. I'm always a little bit squirrely when I see that shows are going to use mental illness as a theme for a character because so often they get it wrong. All I'm going to say is that so far, Disney Plus and Marvel have done a reasonably good job with Moon Knight. So, fingers crossed. So far, the trailer has been relatively well received, I think. I think people are pretty happy with it. There is just one criticism that has been consistently levelled. And that is Oscar Isaac's voice. Now, we know Oscar Isaacs. He's Poe Dameron. We know what he sounds like. In the trailer, he doesn't sound like you would imagine him to sound, like we all are familiar with him sounding. He sounds like this. I have a sleeping disorder. I can't tell the difference between my waking life and dreams. Thus winning Oscar Isaac, the official Worst British Accent Prize, a title which has been proudly held by Dick Van Dyke since 1964. Honestly, it's actually worse than Benedict Cumberbatch's American accent, although I accept it's a fair retaliation. Now, I suspect, and this is pure speculation on my point, but I suspect that, in fact, that's not the way Moon Knight is going to sound. I suspect that's the way the Stephen personality talks, and that Mark Spector will be speaking much more like Oscar Isaacs does. Overall, though, gotta say, terrible, terrible accent aside, the trailer looks good. I'm quite excited for Moon Knight now. It's a character I've always liked uh, ever since I started reading comics in the 80s, and I think they're going to do him justice. I mean, Isaacs is obviously a fantastic actor, so there's that. The costume looks perhaps a little bit busy for my tastes, but it's pretty much comics accurate. And they've got the glowing eyes, which is hard to do in a live-action costume. Uh, it's easy in a comic, obviously, uh, but hard to do in a costume that someone's actually got to wear. They've nailed it. I presume it's CG, but I actually don't know that. However they've done it, it looks really, really impressive. And I like it a lot. If you somehow missed the trailer, it is in the show notes, which are there this week. I know we've had some trouble with the show notes over the last few weeks. I promise you, promise you, that if you go to destinationvenus.co.uk, click on the blog button and scroll down for this particular issue of Geeking, which is issue 36, they are going to be there. Okay, I'm writing them as I record, so the show notes will definitely be there. Okay, so that's the geeky news that I have right now. Time to move on to... And first in space, your regular James Webb Space Telescope update. It's all going really well. Everything is going absolutely according to plan. Everything is hunky-dory, and I never thought, after the journey this instrument has had from its inception to its launch, never thought I'd be able to say this. I am so impressed. It's ridiculous. NASA missions just don't go this well. So we will be keeping our fingers very firmly crossed. Not going quite so smoothly, although I don't think there's any particular cause for alarm is the Mars Perseverance rover. It seems that during an operation to take some rock samples in which the uh, the rover was using its rover arm and its drill to drill into a rock, some of the debris from that drilling got into uh, what they call the bit carousel. This is the, the thing that has the, all the various drill bits and stuff on it, um, which has caused some issues. Uh, the Perseverance rover did what it's designed to do. Uh, it, it noted the problem, stopped what it was doing, sent the information back to Earth, and Mission Control are having a look at it and seeing what, if anything, they need to do. This is something that would be ridiculously easy to sort out on Earth and ridiculously easy to sort out if we had a person on site on Mars. But we don't. And I think this is, what, the eighth time, something like that, that we've used a remote 
technically operated robot-y vehicle-y thing, technical term that, robot-y vehicle-y thing, to drill into rocks on another planet. So NASA is being very cautious. They're taking this very slow. I imagine everything would be back to full operating capacity very, very soon. And sticking with things that might be a problem for NASA, but that they'll probably solve, they've got an astronaut shortage. Back in the heady days of the early 2000s, when the space shuttle was in full swing and the International Space Station was being put together, NASA had an astronaut corps of around 150 astronauts. Obviously, the space shuttle was retired in 2011. And for a while, NASA didn't have a way of getting astronauts into space. They had to rely on the Russians. And they were doing much less manned spaceflight because they didn't have anything for their people to fly in. So the astronaut corps has been shrinking. And it now stands at 44. NASA has just 44 qualified astronauts currently on their books. Now, this is largely because... A lot of astronauts have just retired because, you know, they were trained to fly the space shuttle and there isn't one anymore. So they've moved on. And because there's been no new space vehicle to replace the the shuttle, no new astronauts have been trained or not as many as you would expect. And if anything, that number of 44 is going to get smaller. As I said, though, there's no particular need to worry because they have now put out a call for new astronaut trainees. And as the Orion capsule comes on stream and the Artemis project kicks into full gear, there will be a new generation of NASA astronauts coming through. And of course, it is worth pointing out that both Blue Origin and SpaceX are going to be having their own astronauts. So the total number of astronauts is probably going to be more than ever in the next couple of years have to say, NASA is keeping the standard for its astronauts extraordinarily high. Uh, just because we're talking about astronauts right now, uh, I'd like to bring to your attention the astronaut Johnny Kim. Because if you look up overachiever in the dictionary, there is a picture of him. Okay, let me take you through Kim's career. Okay, he left high school and enlisted in the Marines. Uh, He became a Special Forces Navy SEAL, regarded very, very much as the best of the best of the best in terms of US Special Forces. As a SEAL, he served in several areas of operation uh, and in several capacities. He was a sniper. uh, He was a Special Operation Combat Medic uh, and a navigator. Uh, And he was also awarded uh, the Silver and the Bronze Stars for Valor. Now, that's pretty impressive. Okay, Lots of astronauts do come from a military background, but usually an Air Force background, uh, because obviously flying planes is you know, a useful skill to have if you're going to be flying spacecraft. But of course, astronauts don't necessarily have to fly stuff anymore. So that was where his career started. That's a pretty impressive military record. But in 2012, He went back to the University of San Diego to earn his bachelor's degree in mathematics because obviously he'd enlisted in the the Navy straight from high school. So he missed his college education. He wanted to get that back. And then he reflected on his experience as um, a Marine. And, you know, because various things he'd seen, I'm sure a lot of it was very unpleasant, he decided he wanted to become a doctor. So he did. And he graduated Harvard Medical School in 2016 uh, as a physician. And then he decided he wanted to do yet more. So in 2017, he applied to join the astronaut program and he was selected, becoming, incidentally, the first Korean American astronaut, which, you know, is something that's probably going to hang around his neck a little bit because he's going to be held up as a role model and an example in a way that not all astronauts are. Although, to me, all astronauts are role models. So, you know, there's that. Finally, he has been selected for the Artemis program. 
This is not that surprising given how few astronauts NASA currently has. Uh, but also, look at his record, for goodness sake. So it's possible, possible that Johnny Kim might actually make it to the moon. It might be his boots on the ground when NASA finally sends humans back to the surface of the moon. I really do find that incredibly impressive. But then that's astronauts for you. They have always been the best of the best at what they do. And, you know, they tend to make mere mortals like myself feel just a little bit inadequate. But when I look back over my life and wonder why I never got to be an astronaut, I can sort of see why. And on that bombshell, that's it for space. Before we get back into comics and science, I just want to have a little think about something on the TV. Specifically, I want to go back to the book of Boba Fett. If you were listening last week, you will have heard me talk about the first two episodes of the book of Boba Fett. And, you know, I liked it. I particularly liked the way the Tuscans were being portrayed. And then I watched episode three. Now, don't get me wrong, I still love this show. But, yeah, couple of issues. And there will be spoilers if you aren't watching The Book of Boba Fett and you think you'd like to be. And if you haven't seen episode three, then you might want to fast forward uh, about the next four minutes. Or if you're listening on Harrogate Community Radio Live, um, go and make a cup of tea. Spoilers! Spoilers! Because that's your warning. You are duly warned. Spoilers for The Book of Boba Fett, episodes one, two and three coming up. OK, they all gone. What's that guy at the back? No. OK. You, yeah. Yeah. OK. Everyone who needs to go has gone. Because episode three has caused a bit of kerfuffle online. And yeah, I know everything causes kerfuffle online, but there are some points that I think are worth reflecting on. First of all, the Tuscans. They've kind of been fridged, haven't they? Um, I don't know whether the death of the little Tuscan party that uh, Fett had joined is going to form a motivation, which is the definition of a fridging. But yeah, we were really getting somewhere and now they're gone. And suddenly this trope is becoming much more traditional. You know, now he must avenge their death. Much more interesting, I think. If they'd had the attack on the Tuscans, but the Tuscans had escaped in some way, perhaps injured, perhaps uh, they, they'd lost some of their party. Um, but then Fett could have gone and done the same thing. I mean, he's clearly going to go and challenge this biker gang now. But they could have come back. There could have been a relationship between the indigenous peoples of Tatooine and Fett. And, you know, he could be the ruler who shows how the indigenous people of the planet need to be respected. You know, you, they could have done something really interesting with that relationship. And now they've killed them all, so they're not going to. And I don't know. I think it's a, it's a wasted opportunity. It's not just lost. It's wasted. And I'm sad about that. But there you go. They don't pay me a right Boba Fett. So um, what can I do? Well, I'll tell you what I can do. I can complain about it on podcasts and radio shows. That's what I can do. And that's what I'm doing. Um, oddly, that's not the thing that got the internet really riled up, though. What got the internet really riled up, as far as I can see, is there were some space mods on scooters. And yes, visually, they were quite jarring. We're used in Star Wars for everything to be a little bit grimy, you know, a little bit dusty, a little bit worn out, a little bit old. And the idea of these kids on scooters was that they were a bunch of uh, kids into their cybernetic modifications. And they all each had like this sort of, it's a hover Vespa, basically is what it is. It was clearly, clearly based on a Vespa. And their bikes, their, their space scooters were pristine, you know, shiny and chromed and sparkling. And a lot of people said, that's not Star Wars. 
To which I say, phooey. At least that's what I say on the radio. Directly, I've said slightly different words, but never mind. Because, first of all, something that never changes is no good. Star Wars has to change. It can't always be grimy and dusty and mucky. Yes, Star Wars is a world that needs to live, needs to look lived in. That was always the premise of Star Wars. It was never going to be Star Trek. But there are levels and differences and shades of grey here. Uh, one of the objections that I really took exception to online was that this is supposed to be like a rundown part of town. The story that involved these kids on the Space Vespers was about they'd been stealing water because they didn't have jobs and they couldn't afford to pay the exorbitant prices that were being charged for water. And FET's solution is to hire the kids and give them jobs and pay the water vendor what the water was actually worth. And, you know, there was a message there somewhere. But the idea was, with some of the people that objected online to these kids and their scooters, was if they were poor kids with no jobs, you know, they'd have beat-up old stuff. And that fundamentally misunderstands something. Uh, and I'm presuming was mostly that comments like that were mostly coming from people who've not been poor. Because think about it for a second. Um, think back to the 60s and 70s when there were mods on their scooters. These were not rich kids. These were working class kids. They didn't have a lot of money. But they made sure that their suits were sharp. They made sure that their dresses were on point. And they spent any money they had and any spare time they had making those scooters look brilliant. You know, I mean, you'll see pictures of, you know, scooters from the 1960s and 70s, like hundreds of rearview mirrors. Everything that could be chromed was chromed. I mean, you needed sunglasses to look at some of these Vespers. So, you know, I'll, I'll try and put some images online uh, so you can you can see if you're a young person and haven't experienced this. My point is, I am fed up of the constant linking in fiction, and geek fiction is a particularly bad for this, fed up of the linking between poverty and squalor. The two things can go together, but they don't have to go together. And I don't want to get all professional northerner on you, but I grew up in a pit village. Okay. Now, that actually meant a lot of people were doing pretty well. Miners were reasonably well paid when I was a kid. But there were also people who didn't have that much money, where there wasn't that much money to go around. And do you know what? Those people had the neatest gardens with the most clipped hedges. If they had a car, it was always spotless. If you were in their house, it was always spotless because they still had their pride. And that's what these kids in, in Mos Esper on Tatooine represented to me. It was that spirit. It was a, yeah, we've got nothing, but look what we've done with it. And I think that really is very Star Wars indeed. You add to that, that it's clear, clear tip of the hat to George Lucas's love of hot rods, which were the same deal, really. You know, hot rods in America in the 50s and 60s, they were old cars, cheap cars that teenagers had bought and then done up and made fancy and made flash. And yeah, that's the same idea as the mods with their scooters. And it's the same idea as the, you know, the, the kids who you can now find in car parks across the country on a Friday and Saturday night doing donuts in inexpensive small cars that they've modded the heck out of. It's the same attitude. So very Star Wars, as far as I'm concerned, and has every place in Mos Esper. Other things 
going on in the book of Boba Fett right now that I'm a little bit perturbed by. What was the point of bringing in the two Hook twins if they're just going to go away again? And if they're just going away again, why are they bringing Fett a present? Why aren't they just leaving? Why do they want to give him a rancor? Now, I'm glad they gave him a rancor because, first of all, that means he's got a rancor. I presume at the end of this season, we're going to see him writing it. That's going to be amazing. And of course, it also means we've got a role for Danny Trejo, who is just awesome in his own right. And I like to see him in pretty much anything. But again, he's raised that rancor. He's lovingly brought that rancor up. But he's just going, oh, yeah, right. You, yeah, you, why don't we imprint this rancor on you, Mr. Fed? Why isn't he imprinting the rancor on him? Don't get it. Perhaps this will be explained, but uh, I don't know. I think basically the more I watch the book of Boba Fett, the more I wish I was watching The Mandalorian. And that's ironic because when they announced The Mandalorian, my comment was, that's ridiculous. The only Mandalorian I want to hear anything about is Boba Fett. Turns out, Nope. Nope. Now, and as I say, I'm still loving the show. I do think it's slow. And given that we're nearly halfway through the season now, it would be nice if something happened. But I don't mind a slow burn. So, yeah, I'm not particularly objecting. I know a lot of people are very much not enjoying it, though. And that's a shame. Because Fett, I like what they've done with him. See, I have a theory, okay? For people my age, people who were kids when the original trilogy first came out, Boba Fett is absolutely the coolest character in Star Wars. I mean, for me, he, I mean, clearly he's not as cool as Han Solo, but he's very, very close. And for younger people who grew up in different times, that might seem odd. I mean, Fett has about, what, eight minutes of screen time in the whole trilogy? He doesn't do very much, and he gets killed really easily. I mean, OK, now we know he wasn't killed, but you know what I mean. So why do people my age love Fett so much? It's really simple. Bubba Fett was the coolest action figure. And for me and my friends as kids, that was our most profound connection to Star Wars. It was the toys. Because we didn't have video recorders, and even if we did, you couldn't just go out and rent a VHS whenever you wanted one. They didn't used to get released until a couple of years sometimes after the film came out. And, you know, you saw the film at the cinema maybe once, maybe a couple of times, and then that was it until it came on telly. And when it came on telly, it was going to be cut. And if it was an ITV, they put adverts in it. You know, we couldn't just stream it whenever we wanted. So we didn't spend a lot of time watching the movies. What we did do was, you know, we read the comics. Fett was in those. Um, we read the novelizations, And we played with the toys. And if you've seen the Palatoy stroke Kenner action figure of Boba Fett, it looks cool. It has the rocket on the back and the helmet's cool. And so, of course, we love Boba Fett. And we knew almost nothing about Boba Fett. So we made it up. And that made him interesting, too. We knew everything about Han Solo and Luke Skywalker. But we knew nothing about Boba Fett. So we could do anything we liked with his backstory. And you know what? We did. And I think a lot of the people behind the Lucasfilm stuff at Disney Plus, they're kind of my age. So they've probably had these ideas about Boba Fett in their heads for ages. And I like what they're doing with Boba Fett. They're making a character that was actually objectively pretty dull. They're applying the imagination they had as kids. It's cool. I like it. I like it a lot. But I think the problem the show has got is they're spending too much time telling us about Boba Fett and not enough time having Boba Fett do stuff. And that was where the Mandalorian did this better. They didn't spend ages telling us about Jin. 
they just had him do stuff and we learned about him as he went about his day. You know, there was some flashback, but not a whole lot. And, you know, compare that to the Book of Boba Fett, where some of the episodes are, you know, they've been 30, 40% flashback. Back in my teaching days, when kids were doing creative writing, I would always tell them, show, don't tell. I think if there's a problem with the Book of Boba Fett, they're doing far too much telling and not enough showing. But that'll do for now. I've given Disney Plus far too much attention. So it's time to move on to what got me into geek in the first place. It's time to talk comics. Again, if you were listening last week, you will know that last week I didn't get any comics, which, if you are a comic shop, which I am, is quite annoying. Comics work under their current business model by having new stuff every week. Every single Wednesday, new content is released. We call it New Comic Book Day, and people expect to get their comics on that day, or at least to be able to, if they're able to get to the shop. And last week, DHL failed to deliver pretty much my entire order. And then they kept failing to deliver it until today. I am recording this, as I said, on Tuesday the 18th of January. The comics that should have arrived on Tuesday the 11th of January to go on sale on Wednesday the 12th arrived today exactly a week late. The comics that should have arrived today also arrived. So I now have a massive quantity of comics to get through, which, if you are a comics nerd like what I am, is a great problem to have. It does mean that I haven't read any of this week's comics yet, because they literally arrived at lunchtime on the day I'm recording. I'm coming up to eight o'clock now uh, in the evening, and uh, I've had the comics in the house for about eight hours. I haven't finished reading last week's stuff yet. So it's last week's stuff that I'm going to plug this week. Next week, hopefully, I'll have a little mix of the stuff that came in this week and the stuff that will come in next week. But there are a couple of comics that should have been in last week that I really, really want to give a big, big shout out to because they are brilliant. And we're going to start with a comic that I did mention last week, but obviously I hadn't read it because it hadn't arrived. And that is Daredevil, Woman Without Fear. Written by Chip Zdarsky, uh, drawn by Raphael de la Tour, coloured by Federico Blee, and lettered by Clayton Cowles. And it is a stunning piece of work. I was really looking forward to it. Now I've read it, it's just sublime. It really captures the relationship between Electra, who is an assassin and love interest for Matt Murdock, Daredevil, and who is currently taking on the Daredevil mantle. Her relationship with Matt Murdock, with Daredevil. It's a complicated relationship. She's a killer. He's a hero. But the the attraction between... It's very much in the same spirit as the relationship between Batman and Catwoman in that they're natural adversaries, but they are completely attracted to each other. And Elektra is trying so very hard to do what's right. And she's struggling more than a little bit. And what we have here is her processing, her working things out. We are following a true character journey here. And It's fascinating to watch. It's such a brilliant character study. I cannot tell you. It is so worth reading. You don't actually need to know anything about Daredevil and Elektra and their past to understand what's going on here. It's it's a wonderful, wonderful piece of work. Uh, It's uh, a mini-series. I think it's in five parts. Uh, It's from Marvel. Issue 1 is 450. I suspect future issues will be 350. Because Marvel do like to charge you extra for an issue one. And it's just a stunning, stunning book. It looks right. Uh, Then we have, also from Marvel, Marvel Voices Heritage. Now, Marvel Voices is kind of an occasional series. I think every single issue of Marvel Voices so far has been an issue one. And it's, it's kind of their diversity project. 
which sounds worthy and, I hate to use the word, but woke. And it kind of is, but it's actually a really good project. Basically, each issue of Marvel Voices has focused on a particular group. So we've had women, we've had uh, LGBTQ, we've had uh, indigenous voices, we've had um, various ethnicities. And this one, Voices Heritage, focuses on the indigenous people of North America. So these are stories about characters who are indigenous people of North America, and they're created by writers and artists who are also from indigenous communities. And it's just another way to look at things. It's another lens through which to see the Marvel Universe. It's an anthology, and like all anthologies, I like some of the stories in here better than others. I'm not going to name and shame here. Uh, There is a particularly good story in here uh, featuring American Eagle, now mostly known as Native American Eagle, uh, who is a Native American hero character. Um, It's a story about an old man coming to terms with being old and facing up to the fact that he's not the guy he used to be. He can't do the things anymore that he used to do when he was 20. And honestly, as a 50-year-old, I'm feeling it, man. I'm really feeling it. Maybe that's why it appeals to me. But there are a couple of other exceptional stories in here as well. There are a couple that I thought were a little weak, but you can't have everything. And that's, that's the nature of an anthology. I suspect there will be people who love the stories I didn't like and who don't like the one I did. So, you know, But these books are also a great way to showcase particular talent. And, you know, for a long time, for the longest time, the majority of people in comics were white men. And fine, I'm a white man. I'm perfectly happy to say that my worldview and my point of view and my experiences are valid. But I also want to look through the eyes of people with different experiences. And these books allow people to be showcased and you know maybe they can get work now writing spider-man or batman or something you know that isn't tied to their ethnicity or their heritage Uh, but it's a good read and for that reason i commend it and then i've got two more things in this little segment the first is one of the most remarkable comics i've read for a bit um it's right up there for me with the Many Deaths of Layla Starr. And if you've heard me bang on about that, you know what high praise that is. Um, it's called Rain. It's published by Image Comics. Uh, it's based on a story by Joe Hill, uh, adapted for comics by uh, David M. Boer, uh, illustrated by Zoe Thorogood, and um, coloured by Chris O'Halloran, uh, letters by Sean Lee. Uh, it is 350. Uh, it was out last week. Obviously, that means it for me. It was out this week because I didn't get it last week. And it is astonishing. I've been a fan of Joe Hill for some time. Uh, if you don't know who Joe Hill is, um, I suspect he finds this annoying that people keep referring to him as this. But he's Stephen King's little boy and a formidable writer in his own right. Uh, he's not a stranger to comics by any means. He has his own imprint uh, called Hill House over at DC, uh, which focuses on horror. I wouldn't say that Rain was a horror comic, although if you've ever loved anyone, issue one is horrifying. Uh, I'm not giving you any spoilers when I say that basically our central character, our protagonist, is a, a young woman called Honeysuckle. Uh, and the story starts on the day her girlfriend is supposed to be moving in. And she's excited. She has never loved anyone like Yolanda, her girlfriend, before. And there's a lot of, of narrative here. There's a lot of internal monologue about 
how Honeysuckle feels about Yolanda and a lot of, of reflection. And it's it's a very romantic story in that sense. But a tragedy is about to strike. And this is not a spoiler because it's in the solicitation notes. So the people who made this comic wanted people to know about this before they read it. They, The day that they're supposed to move in together, the day that Yolanda arrives at Honeysuckle's house, is the day a great tragedy strikes their city. It's a day when crystals, razor-sharp crystals, rained from the sky for eight minutes, ripping anyone who was caught outside to shreds. As it happens, when the rain fell, Honeysuckle was indoors, Yolanda was outdoors. So, you know, the inevitable happens. Now, I don't know what happens next. What I do know is that what I read this evening was very powerful and very moving meditation on what it means to love somebody and what it means to lose them. It's an astonishing story just for that. Now, the thing with comics is you have to match the art to the narrative. And I've read a lot of comics where the story was great and the art was great, but they didn't complement each other. And so the book didn't work here. They have nailed it. Zoe Thorogood's art is a beautifully clean line and she draws expression so wonderfully that you can see what the characters are thinking. The, the art gives you an extra layer of narrative, which is what comics do when they're at their best. And this is comics at their best. We see the shyness between the two young lovers. We see their nervousness at, at committing themselves to each other. And we see how they feel about each other. It's in their face. You can see it in their eyes. And you can see what other characters are thinking in their faces too. It's stunning, stunning artwork. It's not photorealistic. And it actually is better for that. What we have here is some wonderful character building that makes you invest in these characters. You care about them, even after only a couple of pages. That is a real feat of comic book writing and a real feat of comic book illustration. The colours are muted, but not dull. And again, the, the colouring serves well to kind of accent the emotion. It's a beautiful book. It's an absolutely beautiful book. And I cannot wait for issue two, because I really, really need to see where this is going. And then finally, in the comics roundup section, we've got the return of an old friend. Now, I don't think we've talked about this book since the show became Geeking with Destination Venus, but Back in the Geeks at the Gates days, we definitely talked about this book. Um, and the author, Rachel Smith, has been on the show. So some of you will be familiar with her. Um, I am, of course, talking about the astonishingly good Wired Up Wrong by Rachel Smith. And what this is, this is, I think, the third edition. Um, Wired Up Wrong started as quite a thin little self-published collection of diary comics about living with depression and anxiety. And it came out in 2016, which is the year I took over the shop. And it was one of the first independent pieces of work that I bought, um, you know, dealing directly with the creator, no publisher involved. And it blew me away because it's a book about living with anxiety and depression that is genuinely funny. You will laugh out loud at parts of this. You will also cry, very possibly. I did. Um, because you also get the strength of negative emotion 
coming through. But the general outlook of the work is wonderfully positive, and I love that. Far too much discourse about mental ill health focuses on the negatives, and there are a lot of negatives, but there's also hope, and there's also joy, and Wide Up Wrong understands that. I have kind of a minor background in working with mental ill health. I've volunteered for a mental health charity. Um, I've experienced my own issues with depression. Uh, and I have people who are very close to me who have had similar issues. And I've got to be honest, I really wish, really, really wish I'd read Wired Up Wrong before I had those experiences. I would have been better prepared. I genuinely think that Wired Up Wrong is a story that everybody should read. It should be in every school. It is something that everyone really needs to have some inkling about. But most of the books you're going to read on this subject are pretty daunting and pretty dry and, frankly, pretty dashed depressing. Wired Up Wrong is none of those things. It's a series of very short comics. Each page is its own individual strip. Very few of the strips have got more than five panels in them. Um, but it completely and accurately sums up Rachel Smith's experience of living with anxiety and depression in a, in a way that's not self-pitying, in a way that acknowledges some of the ridiculousness of it, some of the, the ways that, you know, she looks back at things that she did and thinks, oh, what was I doing? It's a wonderfully human Wonderfully funny, beautiful story about a life. And I cannot recommend it highly enough. We actually have some copies of the second edition still in stock. Um, but this week, the third edition, uh, published by a proper publisher, Icon Books, is out. We have that issue, that edition in as well. Just sublime. If you've experienced mental health, you should read it because it will show you that the way you felt and the things you did, maybe not that unusual. If you haven't experienced mental ill health, you should read it anyway, because if you haven't experienced mental ill health, statistically, you will know some people who have and who still are having that experience. And this honestly could help you understand what's going on. You know what? Even if you never, ever come across a person who's experiencing mental ill health, you should read it anyway, because it's just a good read. It's positive, it's life-affirming, and it gives you permission to eat ice cream in the rain, which, yes, is a reference to something in the book, and you're going to have to read it now to find out what I'm talking about. Not sorry. Wired Up Wrong by Rachel Smith is published by Icon Books, it is $12.99 and it is available from all good booksellers and me. So, seriously, check it out. I cannot recommend this book highly enough. It's absolutely wonderful. But we're running out of time. So that is it for comics for this week. We are very close to the hour, but a very quick mention uh, for the Geek Community Notice Board. Uh, the Geek Pub Quiz is coming back. Sunday the 20th of February, half past seven, Major Tom Social, the Geek Pub Quiz starts again. You do not want to miss it. The Geek Pub Quiz was a staple of Harrogate Geek life for years, and it went away in the pandemic, and now it's back. All that remains for me to do is to say that this is a copyright production of Venus Rising Media, and that we will be back next week hopefully with an interview, working on it. Until we see you then, be kind to yourself, be kind to everybody else. Until the next time we meet up and go geeking.